0: So we are uh, in the second week of a series that we have entitled One Mind. And in this series, we are uh, looking at a really dense sentence that the Apostle Peter wrote. And just trying to unpack that sentence and, and explore the sentence that Peter wrote about concepts like division and polarization and how to find unity in the midst of that. And, and last weekend we talked about just all the things that made, uh, not all the things, but so many things that made 2020 so divisive and the need for unity in the midst of that. And then we've had the week that we just had here uh, gone by and uh, like if, if you can't see a need for unity right now, like I mean it's like, I, I don't know if you've been living under a rock and you need to come out and turn on the news or you're just not paying attention or what, I mean it's just so much division. And so last week we started talking about this and we're we'll continuing to talk about it this week and the next few weeks to come. And, and I don't know, if maybe sometime between when we started last week and today, and if you missed last week and I would encourage you, jump online, jump on Facebook, jump on Spotify. Listen to last week's message because each week we're looking at a different critical factor that makes unity possible. But, but sometime between last week and today, did you just stop and, and wonder, why is this so important to Peter? Like, why did he take the time to, to pen this sentence and to discuss, you know, division and conflict and the need for unity with the church of his day? And I suspect that one of the reasons that this was so important to Peter, that unity meant so much to Peter, is because Peter saw how important unity was to Jesus. On the night that Jesus is to be betrayed and and arrested and unjustly tried and sent to the cross to die, we find Jesus praying. And I would argue that when a person knows they're going to die and Jesus knows what's coming, that a person prays about the things that matter most. They don't pray about unimportant things. Like if I know I'm about to die, I'm not going to pray that the lions are going to win. One, it's probably not going to help. And two, like, who cares, right? If I know I'm at death's door, so I'm not praying for my Amazon package to to get here quickly, it doesn't matter. Now, I'm going to pray about the things that matter most. Jesus knows he's going to die. And he is praying in John chapter 17. And we find Jesus praying, and it starts like this. He says, Holy Father... Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Now the them he is praying for, these are his disciples. As Jesus knows he's about to die, he begins to pray to his Father in heaven for the people who are most important to him here on earth, his 12 followers. And he prays that they will be protected. And then he prays that they will be protected for a reason. He says, so that they may be one As we are one. Jesus prays that his first followers. Will be unified. And that their unity. Will reflect the kind of unity. That exists between him and the father. And Jesus. He does so. With a purpose in mind. And and lest we think. That Jesus is just praying for the original 12. As he goes on to pray. He includes more people. He says my prayer is not. For them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. And here's what Jesus prays for us. That all of them will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that we would be unified and that our unity would reflect the unity that exists in the Godhead. And he does so because in the mind of Jesus, one of the most convincing evidences that he came, that he was sent from the Father, is found in the unity of his church. And then Jesus goes on, speaks more about the unity of the church and more about what what kind of evidences it provides. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. As Jesus' death is just hours away, he prays that his followers then, that his followers now, that we would be unified. And in the mind of Jesus, one of the best evidences that he really came and that God really loves is found in our unity. Decades after Jesus prayed these things, Peter sees the church of his day coming up against issues that have the power to divide them. And he cannot help himself. He feels compelled to remind them of the unity that Jesus prayed for. He feels compelled to call them to unity because unity was important to Jesus. And he understands how much is at stake when it comes to unity. Now, I'm no Peter, and God knows I'm no Jesus, amen? You don't need to say it so enthusiastically, John, all right? Easy. But when I see the church today face many of the same issues that Peter was writing about to the church then, I feel compelled to point us to the teachings that Peter brought forward about unity. About how it can be achieved. And so we're looking at this dense sentence that he penned. And in the face of so much division, Peter tells the church then and the church now this. He says, in light of all you're going through, finally, all of you, if you are a follower of Jesus, all of you should be of one mind. You should be united in mind. You should be like-minded. And when we say, Peter, how in the world can we do that? Are you aware of what happened over the course of the last week? Peter says, I'm so glad you asked. Because the, the pathway to unity is going to be found in how you respond to one another in the midst of the very issues that would divide you. So if you're really serious about unity, here's what you do. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted. Have a humble attitude. Peter says, you do these things and you'll achieve unity. If you want unity badly enough, walk this path and it will get you there. So last week we looked at this idea of sympathy, And how as we sit across the table from somebody we do not see eye to eye with, instead of trying to prove they are wrong and we are right, our priority should be to sympathize with them. And and we saw that in the Greek that that meant that we're going to work to understand and feel what they are feeling. And then as Peter continues, he says to us, okay, after you do that, you're to love each other as brothers and sisters. Now, the word we have as, as love here, this is the Greek word philadelphian. And for some of us, this word should be familiar. Because way back in June during the Equip series, we spent a week unpacking this word. In fact, some of us might even remember that, that this word carries with it the idea that we would treat one another like family, even though we're not biologically related to each other. That, that to, to love you this way means I'm going to treat you like your family even though we're not biologically related to each other. Now in an effort to illustrate what this kind of love looks like in a way that's differently nuanced than how we talked about it back in June. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at a portion of the story of a man named Joseph as it's contained in the book of Genesis. Genesis. And we're going to cover about 13 chapters of ground today. So we're going to do a lot of summarizing, a lot of highlighting along the way. But hopefully as we do, we're going to get an idea of what Peter's talking about when he says, love each other like brothers and sisters and how that could lead to unity. So Joseph's story, it picks up with a 17-year-old kid named Joseph. Everybody say 17. 17. Remember that. That's going to be important, right? 17-year-old kid named Joseph who has some pretty dysfunctional family relationships. In fact, Joseph's older brothers are so sick of him, they don't know what to do with themselves. And if you're sitting there going, okay, we're supposed to love each other like family, I can do that. right? Like, I got people in this church I am so sick of. I don't know what to do with myself. That's not what Peter's talking about, Right? The idea with love here carries with it we're going to treat one another like we would in a healthy family, not a dysfunctional family, all right? In fact, when we read through the Joseph narrative, all kinds of times we are going to see just gross dysfunction. Don't gravitate towards that. Instead, look for the times where healthy family peeks through. That's what we're shooting for. So again, Joseph's brothers, they are sick of him. In fact, we're told multiple times they hate his guts. And it's not completely without reason. Joseph's dad, Jacob, plays favorites. Joseph's the favorite. Everybody knows it. Joseph is the only one who appreciates it. Joseph has caught his brothers misusing his dad's, you know, resources, and he narks them out. Joseph is is the kid who had the dream that his brothers would someday bow down to him, recognize his power and superiority over them. And Joseph is so socially inept, he thinks it's a good idea to tell his brothers about the dream. They've got a reason for not liking the kid, right? And so one day, his older brothers see Joseph coming and they decide to take action on their feelings. We read, they say this, Come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of these cisterns and say to our father, a ferocious animal devoured him. Then let's see what becomes of his dreams. Now, again, they got reason to not like the kid. This is excessive, all right? If you're like, is that functional or dysfunctional family? That's dysfunctional, all right? So this is their plan. One of the brothers, Reuben, is like, you know, That's probably a little extreme. So he says to his brothers, listen, let's just throw them into a dried up well. We can do that. But then let's sit out. We'll have some lunch. We'll we'll, we'll brainstorm what we want to do next. He figures my brothers are hangry. If I can get a sandwich into them, maybe they'll be a little bit more reasonable, right? And it works. Like they're having lunch, and one of the brothers sees the slave caravan going through, and he says, hey, what are we going to gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not lay a hand on him. After all, he's our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. And so, ultimately, his brothers recognize, hey, Joseph's family. Yeah, right now, we just want to snuff his little life out but he's a brother. We can't do that. So let's sell him as a slave instead, right? You're like, is that functional? Is that dysfunctional? There's a little bit of both going on there, okay? Now, if you're familiar with Joseph's story, you know this decision on his older brother's part, it leads to all kinds of heartache for Joseph. I mean, prior to this decision, he he is free, He is unconditionally loved. He is surrounded by family. He's got a bright future ahead of him. And in a moment, he is ripped out of his father's Jacob's house and thrust into Potiphar's home where he's no longer free now. He is a slave. He is no longer unconditionally loved. He better produce. He's no longer surrounded by family. He's basically alone. And he no longer has a bright future. He's just hoping to survive here. In spite of this, Joseph works to remain faithful to his God, works to be faithful to Mr. Potiphar. Even when Mrs. Potiphar comes and hits on him, he refuses her. And what does his faithfulness get him? Thrown into prison and accused of rape. Now in prison, Joseph is confronted with more dreams. Not his dreams, the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker who are both in prison as well. And Joseph is able to interpret their dreams. And he does so correctly. And and it's good news for the cupbearer. And the cupbearer is like, man, if there's anything I can do for you, you just let me know. And Joseph's like, there is something you can do for me. Like, when all goes well with you, remember me. And show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh. And get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put into a dungeon. And so when the cupbearer is free, if you know Joseph's story, you know what he does for Joseph. Promptly forgets him. And for two additional years, Joseph rots in prison because he was faithful. Now, at the end of that time, Pharaoh begins to have these crazy dreams. They're freaking him out. Nobody can interpret those dreams for Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer grows a memory. He's like, oh, there's this guy back in prison. He can interpret dreams. And so they bring Joseph in front of Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets that dream. And he lets Pharaoh know, hey, listen, you got seven years of just booming economy that's coming. And you, you, then after that, you got seven years of famine and heartache on the way. So, Pharaoh, you need to find somebody that can run the country and get the country ready for what's coming. And so Pharaoh says, you know what? It's going to be you, kid. Takes, takes Joseph out of prison, gives him a wife, makes him second in command of all of Egypt, and then sets him into running the country. Now, that's all good news. However, Joseph is 30 years old when this happens. What was that first number? 17. 17. That means Joseph has spent 13 years of his life enslaved or imprisoned because of his brothers. And then he is going to spend the next seven years of his life running the country for Pharaoh. Now, Twenty years of his life have been taken from him, and everything he predicts it comes true. Like there's a seven years of plenty. now, now we come into the famine. And the famine it's, it is worldwide, as far as the known world goes. Nobody can get food except in Egypt. And this creates a run-in for Joseph and his brothers, because there in Canaan, they got nothing to eat. But they hear there's food to be purchased in Egypt. And so all of Joseph's older brothers, they head to Egypt to do some grocery shopping. And somehow everybody who's going to buy food comes before Joseph, which seems so inefficient to me, but whatever. You know, so like his brothers are there in front of him. They don't recognize Joseph. They're just standing in front of the second in command of all of Egypt. The man who can feed them and their families or let them starve so they bow down to this man to recognize his power and superiority over them and joseph he recognizes them he recognizes the men who have cost him the last 2 decades of his life and joseph's going to have to figure out how's he going to respond to them Because again, Peter tells us that the pathway to unity, the pathway to peace, it is found in how we respond to one another in the midst of the issues that would divide us. Joseph and his brothers have some issues that could divide them. What's he going to do? And as the narrative continues, we're going to see this wrestling match take place in Joseph. Like he starts off, he speaks harshly to them. Pretends he doesn't know them, doesn't tell them who he is. Demands to know, where did you come from? Plays 20 questions with them. Tell me, you got a dad, what's his name? Got any other siblings? Got any younger brothers? Oh, you got a Benjamin? How old is he? Where is he at? Why didn't he come with you? Then he accuses them of being spies. Tosses them into prison and lets them rot there for three days. after three days, he takes them out of prison. And he says, I'll tell you what. Go make a deal with you boys. I'm going to sell you some grain. I'm going to keep one of you here as hostage. The rest of you can go home. And don't you come back here. Don't show your face in Egypt again until you come back with your youngest brother, this Benjamin kid you claim exists. And as Joseph is you know, like dropping this sentence on his brothers, they're talking to each other about how God is judging them for, for what they did to their brother Joseph and how they sold him into slavery and they told their dad he was dead. And as they're having this discussion in Hebrew, they think Joseph can't understand them. And even though it's been 20 years, he can. As they're having this discussion, Joseph, the, the man who's been deceiving his brothers about who he is, The man who's been using his power and authority to put the screws to them. He hears this conversation. And we're told that he turned away and began to weep. Joseph hears his brothers recognizing the wrong they did to him as their brother. And it begins to just tear him apart emotionally. But then, comes back, speaks to them, has Simeon tied up right in front of their eyes and tossed into the joint. Then gives them their grain and sends them on their way. Except now he's going to play the silver and the sack game with his brothers. They pay for the silver. He tells his people, you put their money back in their food bags and don't say anything to them about it. And they get part way home and they open their food bags and there's the money that they paid for the food. And they're like, what in the world are we going to do now? This guy clearly doesn't like us. He accuses us of being spies. Now he's going to think we stole the food. We can't go back there. Simeon's just going to have to figure it out. Too bad for him, right? Only trouble is they only have the food they bought. The famine is raging. There's no food to be found anywhere. And eventually it runs out. They don't go back to Egypt, they're going to starve. And so back to Egypt, all of Joseph's older brothers and now Benjamin go. Much to Jacob's dismay. Again, Jacob lost Joseph, his favorite son. It broke his heart. He is convinced if I lose Benjamin as well, it will kill me. What's he going to do? The food is gone. He can starve to death and watch Benjamin starve to death as well. Or he can send him to Egypt with his brothers. And so away they go. And when they get there, the first person they find is Joseph Stewart. And they're like, listen, here's the money. We don't know how this wound up in our bags. We swear. We didn't steal a thing. We promise you, we paid. Joseph Stewart, the man who knows his business, who is responsible for running his house, he lies to them. Oh, we got your money. I don't know what you're talking about. That, that, money in that sex? God must have done that for you. And he brings the brothers into Joseph. They bow down to him again. When Joseph sees Benjamin, the brother he shares a mother with, the brother who had nothing to do with what was done to him, again he breaks down. We're told he was deeply moved at the sight of his brother and Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to fall apart. But then he comes back and plays some more games with his brothers. Has them taken to his house, and they're going to have lunch together. And there's a signed seating from oldest to youngest. And the brothers, you know, like they, they got Simeon back, and they're like, like, this is not a coincidence. Who knows this? And then the food's brought out, and they all get the same amount of food until they get to Benjamin, and he gets five times as much food. Everybody's like, what is going on? The next day, Joseph sells them more grain, sends them on their way. Except he plays the silver and the sack game again. Except this time there's a twist. He takes his silver cup and he has it put into Benjamin's bag. Now, if I'm Joseph's brothers, I am not taking a step out of Egypt until I've checked those bags, Right? But away they go, and they get partway home, and they open up their bags. You know, they don't, they don't even open up their bags. They get partway home, and Joseph Stewart comes and accuses them of stealing his silver cup. And they're all like, we know we didn't do this. You have to check our stuff. In fact, they, they, they're so confident, they say to him, if any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will go back and be my Lord's slaves. And the steward's like, you don't need to be all dramatic about it, you know. Just whoever's got it, he's going to come back, he's going to be a slave. That's how we'll do this thing. So they open up all the bags. And sure enough, there's the cup where Joseph had it planted in Benjamin's bag. And the brothers are devastated. They're like, if we don't bring this kid back, it is going to kill dad. The steward's like, "You, you guys are all free to go. And still all the brothers. They they don't leave Benjamin to his fate. All the brothers, they go back with him. And they get back there in front of Joseph, and Joseph accuses them of the crime that he set them up for. And and they, they tell him, let, let us all become your slaves. Just let the kid go. He's like, No, 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 no. You guys, you're free. Leave this brother to his fate. You, you're free to go back home. I'm just going to keep him. And then then his brother Judah launches into this story about how they had this younger brother and he was lost and it broke their dad's heart. And and if 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 he loses Benjamin now, they're convinced it will kill him. And then Benjamin says, now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Judah offers to take his brother Benjamin's place. Judah offers his life in exchange for his brother's freedom. And that snaps something inside of Joseph. See, again, there's, a, there's this wrestling match going on inside of him. Here are the brothers who hated him, who threatened his life, who, who, who sold him into slavery, who are in part responsible for him being accused of rape and being thrown into prison and spending years there. Here are the brothers who cost him two decades of his life. And something inside of Joseph wants to respond with rage and and vengeance and bitterness. It's that part we're watching play games with them. And yet there's another part of Joseph. The part that's family. The part that recognizes these are my brothers. There's this almost inexplicable part of Joseph that knows, I need to respond differently. And so we watch the wrestling match, recognizes him, lies to them about who he is, uses position, you know, to put the screws to him. Here's them talking about how they did him wrong as a brother, and he breaks down, plays the silver and the sack game with them, locks them up into prison, Then he sees Benjamin and he comes apart at the seams. Plays these games at his house. Sets them up for having stolen from him personally. But when he hears Judah and sees his brothers, they they all could have went home, but they all come back. They respond the way family should respond. Judah offers himself in his brother's place. When Joseph sees his brothers behaving the way that family should behave, it just breaks inside of him. So he throws all the Egyptians out. And he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? And his brothers can't speak. They can't answer him because they're terrified at his presence. They're just standing there in the freshly made puddles that they have just created themselves, right? (laughs) Like, this is the kid they threatened to kill who begged for his life at the bottom of that cistern. This is the kid they sold into slavery. They haven't seen him for 20 plus years. And this is the kid who's been messing with them, threatening them, accusing them, who can do anything he wants to them right now. And they are so scared they can't speak. And Joseph says to them, come close to me. I am your brother, Joseph. Don't be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves. God sent me ahead of you. I will provide for you. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked to him. Joseph and his brothers, they've got issues, more than enough issues to divide them. And Joseph has to decide, how am I going to respond to them in the midst of the issues that would divide us? And there's this part of Joseph that wants to go bitter and resentful and vengeful. And he wrestles with that part of him. But in the end, there's a part of Joseph that recognizes this is family. There's this inexplicable part of Joseph that recognizes these are my brothers. And and instead, he extends to them Forgiveness and reconciliation and care. Because that's what love does in a healthy family. Now, I, I would contend that most, if not all, of us, we can relate to Joseph here. That that we have experienced what Joseph has experienced. And and I get it not like not on the same scale, not on the same level that he has. But like I bet all kinds of us come up here and tell stories about how a brother or a sister did something to us or said something to us or pulled something on us that if any other person who we were not related to, if they had done that, said that, pulled that thing, that would have been it. Done. I'm not speaking to them. I will not be in the same room as them. I don't want to see them again. But because it was our brother, because it was our sister, this inexplicable thing inside of us knew that just, that's family. I'm, I'm, I'm going to respond differently than if it wasn't. Or about all kinds of us, we've seen like two people and, and their relationship completely goes down the tubes. They're not talking to each other. They don't want anything to do with each other anymore. Or we'll see a relationship where you have one person who has to set up some significant boundaries because the second person in that relationship has become so dysfunctional that that's what they've got to do. And we'll see that. And when the two people who we've described there, when they're siblings, that impacts us deeply Differently when those two people aren't siblings. Sure, anytime two people have their relationship, go to South, you gotta set up boundaries because somebody's become dysfunctional or or hurtful, that's a shame. But we feel that differently when those two people have no kind of family connection than when we when we see that and they're brothers or sisters. When, 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 When siblings won't talk to each other anymore. When they won't see each other anymore. When one sibling has to set up boundaries to protect themselves from another sibling. We just, we're like, man, that is so broken. It it shouldn't work like that between brothers. It shouldn't work like that with your sister. We know it should be different when it's family. In the midst of the issues that would divide us, Peter says to us, Finally, all of you be of one mind. And we're like, Peter, how in the world do we do that? And he's like, I'm so glad you asked. The way, the pathway to unity, the pathway to peace is found in the way you respond to each other in the midst of these issues that would divide you. So you really serious about unity? Love one another like brothers and sisters. The, the thing you would do for your brother or sister, the, the, just that inexplicable measure of grace that you would extend to, to that person in your physical family, extend that to the people in your spiritual family. The the bitterness, the resentment, the the revenge that you would withhold from your biological sibling. Don't let that creep into the relationship with your spiritual sibling. The the reconciliation, the, the, the forgiveness, the care that you would extend to your physical brother or sister, extend that to your brother and sister in Christ. If you're really serious about unity, Peter, Peter would say, love each other like brothers and sisters. And then Peter would say, hey, th- that person you go to church with, you know what? Yeah, they probably don't deserve that kind of love. They probably have not earned that kind of love. They probably will not reciprocate or appreciate that kind of love. But that's not why we show that kind of love. We love like brothers and sisters, even though we're not biologically related to one another, because that kind of love, that kind of love can lead to unity. The the kind of unity that Jesus prayed as he was going to die that we would achieve. The kind of unity that Jesus believed served as the greatest evidence that he truly came and that God truly loves. That kind of unity is born out of us loving one another like brothers and sisters. So, is peace, is one mindedness, is it really possible? According to Peter, it is. If we want it badly enough. If we want it badly enough to walk the path of peace that Peter is pointing us to here. If we'll respond to one another in the midst of the issues that would divide us the way Peter is calling us to. And so Peter says it starts with sympathy. And then next, we work to love each other as brothers and sisters. And next week, we're going to see that this continues as we seek to be tender-hearted with one another. Path to peace, it's there. Unity is possible. It's a matter of whether or not we're going to walk it. Just stand with me, Church. Father, we just pray that you would do a work in our hearts. That here in this family of faith, you would be relentless in revealing to us where we have prioritized other things over unity, where we allow ourselves to respond differently than we are being called to here. That you in an inescapable way would reveal that to each of us. God, I just pray you would do a work in our hearts. Where instead of trying to prove somebody right, instead of being all self-consumed and self-focused, we would be sympathetic. We would be loving. Father, some of us today, in this moment, we want to confess to you that love for us oftentimes looks dysfunctional instead of functional. Jesus, we just want to invite you to change who we are. We just want to commit ourselves pursuing the kind of love that you had in mind here to treat that person who sits across the table from us who we do not see eye to eye with to treat them the way we would treat a brother or sister in a healthy functional family help us please as a church to model this in a different kind of way